is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love to tell stories about everything here on this show, especially your stories. You're the hour in Our American Stories. Send your stories to us at OurAmericanNetwork.org, and we'll help you record them. And this next story comes from a listener named Karen Cutler-Drectra, who listens to us on WHBY 1150 AM in Appleton, Wisconsin. Here's Karen on her father, Jim. There are rare moments of happiness in a hospital, especially in the room of an 89-year-old man with dementia. But even there, once in a while, you are blessed with a golden memory that almost makes the experience worth it. I need to preface what happened by letting you in on a long-running family joke. When my sister and I were young, we'd always ask Dad what his favorite song was, even though we knew what the answer would be. The Kentucky Waltz, he would always reply. My father grew up in southern Illinois, near the Kentucky border, during the 1930s through the early 1950s, and his primary source of entertainment was the Grand Old Opry on the radio. In the late 1950s, my father moved to northeastern Wisconsin and married my mother, but brought his love for country music with him. So, for most of our young lives, we grew up listening to country music. However, the Kentucky Waltz was never heard on any of the country music stations here. There's no such thing as the Kentucky Waltz, we'd tease him. You must be thinking of the Tennessee Waltz. And then all of us would start singing at the top of our lungs, I was waltzing with my darling to the Tennessee Waltz. However, Dad kept insisting there was such a song as the Kentucky Waltz, but he couldn't remember the words or the melody. Since this was the early 1970s, before Google and the World Wide Web, Dad would ask various musicians, listen to country music radio stations, and look at every single song selection on jukeboxes, but never came across the Kentucky Waltz. Fast forward 45 years. Both my sister and I had long forgotten about teasing Dad on the existence of this song. He had had a few mini-strokes, and, according to various scans and tests, his brain had shrunk. We finally got him into an assisted living facility, but he couldn't understand why he was there and fought with everyone almost the entire time. Since my sister and her family lived in Las Vegas, I was the closest living sibling, so I ended up being the person who was called when he was acting up. I didn't mind at the beginning, but it started to be four to five times a week and I didn't want to resent my father for something he couldn't help, but I was beginning to. However, after a few months of living there, his health declined to the point of him being in the hospital, and my sister flew in to be by his bedside. Now, sitting next to my incoherent father, as he was babbling nonsense about people's names I didn't recognize, I had my nose buried deep into my cell phone playing some game to distract me on how heartbroken I was sitting there listening to him. 
I did finally recognize a couple of the names he whispered, of people he knew growing up in southern Illinois, though they were people I had never met and had long since passed away. At this particular moment, it was just Dad and me in the room. My sister had left to take a break and get us some coffee downstairs. Out of nowhere, he started to sing. We were waltzing last night in Kentucky Beneath the beautiful harvest moon My head snapped to attention. I thought, what is he singing? I never heard this song before. Suddenly, all those memories of car rides, which ended with us laughing at Dad about the song that didn't exist, came flooding into my brain. I grabbed my phone and went directly to YouTube. I entered the Kentucky Waltz in search, and there it was, staring me in the face, a video of the Osborne brothers singing the Kentucky Waltz. I turned up the volume, and Dad's eyes became more focused and moist. He started singing at the top of his lungs, all the words to the song, right along with the music. He didn't miss one word after 60 years of not hearing it. My sister came through the door and asked, What's going on? I can hear Dad singing all the way down the hall. Wait, Dad's singing? I quickly filled her in on what happened, and I immediately replayed the video, which, of course, Dad then started singing again. We both started to cry and laugh at the same time. Dad looked at both of us and said, Why are you guys laughing so hard? I told you this was my favorite song. We had a great afternoon with him. He was able to hold a conversation. We laughed. We cried. We created the last happy memory I have of him. He made somewhat of a turnaround and was able to be released to a memory center at a nursing home. Dad died three months later, but when I'm missing him or just feeling lonely for family, the gift of that song helps chase those sad feelings away. I've played the song so many times, I also know, know all the words by heart and sing at the top of my lungs. We were waltzing last night in Kentucky Beneath the beautiful harvest moon And I was a boy that was lucky been listening to Karen Cutler Drectra and her story about her father and a song. And Karen is a listener at WHBY 1150 AM in Appleton, Wisconsin. Her story, her father's story, and the story of a song, one of our best so far, here on Our American Stories.
And we're back with Our American Stories. And now Alex Cortez brings us the story of an Israeli immigrant as part of our Immigrant Song series. I mean, the existential um, fear and the existential risk is so great at any moment in one's life in Israel that um, it makes you go out on a limb. Even in music. And that's not a guitar shredding Led Zeppelin's Black Dog. That's a cello. The cello of the woman who's been called the world's cello goddess, Maya Beiser. We desire to be free and music gives you, it allows you that freedom. But there are also a lot of rules because in sort of the traditional education of classical music, you're being taught to follow all these rules about how you're supposed to present yourself, about how certain piece of music should be heard. And these were the kind of things that I always questioned. People have always said, Oh, yeah, you never followed the traditional path, the predictable way. And to me, that's what an artist does. And I think that's what we all should do as humans. We should aspire to be free. An ideal that Jewish families like hers have chased for decades, making her musical risks seem like nothing. My father grew up in Argentina. He's actually a son of immigrants from Ukraine who escaped from Ukraine in the turn of the century. You know, Jews were not very well liked there at that time. (laughs) And they ended up, they were banned, and they ended up going in a boat and coming to Argentina and settling in the middle of the Pampas, creating this little Jewish community in which my father was raised. And he met my mom in Buenos Aires. She was just visiting with her family. My mother grew up in France. This was in the Vichy area of France when the Nazis occupied France. Both my grandparents became partisans, they went into the the woods and they fought against the Nazis. They put my mom and her sister in a monastery where she was raised. All Jews were basically either killed or somehow managed to hide. So this is the background to where Zionists came. At that time in history, Israel was the promised land for Jews who felt like It was the only place where they could be safe. And my father, he was a Zionist and decided to come to Israel. And he convinced my mom to go into this kibbutz, this community. It was a real commune. There was a sense that 
they wanted to make a just world. And so the whole idea of the kibbutz movement was really about creating a society where everybody is equal. And their motto was that you give as much as you can and you take as much as you need, uh, which is kind of a beautiful motto <laughs> for life. Karl Marx's motto, and it is beautiful if it works. More on that later. This kibbutz, which was in the Galilee mountain, there's literally nothing there. The environment, just to kind of paint for you the environment that I grew up with, was an environment that we were surrounded by Arab villages. In fact, not even a mile from where I grew up, there was a Bedouin village. They were Muslims. There was another village, another mile from there. Some were Christians. There was another one that were Druze, which is another culture. And my father spoke Arabic. He was the people from all these villages. They were part of our household. I mean, they would come. We would go to them. We lived in harmony. And one of my first musical experiences, which influenced me a lot, was hearing the call to prayer to the Muazin every morning at 5 a.m., just waking up and hearing those beautiful singing voices from the villages that were around us. And we went to their weddings. We were always, it was just a wonderful environment. So that was one reality. And then there was the other reality of my childhood, which was we were surrounded by those enemies, right? I mean, there was the Egyptian army, and there was the Syrian army, and there was the Jordanian army. All picking on this little nation called Israel. There was always this fear of war and that we would be attacked and everybody had to go to the army. I mean, 1973, the Syrian army, I mean, we basically spent that war in shelters. It was very scary. And I remember my parents saying, the tanks are very close to the kibbutz. And we really literally thought we might be occupied and killed. So it was, yeah, there was a lot of that. We also had a lot of, during my childhood, there were a lot of small terrorist cells that would go mostly through the Jordan River. Where I grew up, it was right by the Jordan River, so they were coming through the Jordan border and they would take over like hostages. They did them in several kibbutzes at the time and kill them. and. So there was, you know, there was a lot of, a lot of scary thing happening. <laughs> Maya laughs because otherwise she'd have to cry. You know, I see things in, I think, the more, the complexity of the situation. And I see it more than people can really get a sense when, when you just kind of hear it in the news, you know, because it's very complex. And yet one roadblock is rather simple. Islamic fundamentalists like Hamas have the explicit goal of destroying Israel. And that is the big challenge, of course, you know, because there are people there that no, no matter 
what I would say would still want to kill me. They would just want to kill me simply because I'm a Jew or because I'm an Israeli. And so they don't they don't care if I offer to speak about peace. So, so that's, and of course, that's very hard. And especially in a situation where you've got people who are so desperate that they're being manipulated by cynical and sometimes religious zealousy and money from not necessarily good forces like Iran. But what do you do when you have little kids who their mother, their mothers are willing to send them with suicide belts to explode? But ultimately for me in my world and what I can do is I just want to promote in every possible way that I can with my art. I want to promote peace and I want to promote for music, which I think is so important, the, the notion that we're really, that we're really have kinship, we're really close to each other. And so I think if you start peeling all those unnecessary layers of resentment and hatred and all those things, then you hope that eventually, somehow, it reaches <laughs> sort of the depth of our souls. Indeed, and we're listening to Maya Beiser, the cello goddess, and it's so true about music, and we love telling music stories here on this show from our stories of song. It's just the stories of artists and the differences in cultures that are brought together through music, my favorite being Carol King, a young Jewish girl growing up on the Upper West Side, and Aretha Franklin, born in Memphis, grows up in Detroit, the daughter of one of the biggest preachers, the Billy Graham of African-American preachers of the 1950s. And they come together through a song that Carol wrote and only Aretha could have performed, bringing white and black together, north, south, and east, rural and urban together. Only music has that power. And when we come back, we'll continue with Maya Beiser's story here on Our American Stories. we continue with our American stories and our immigrant song and today it's Maya Beiser's story her song cellist Maya Beiser she grew up in Israel in a kibbutz let's continue with her tale in my kibbutz everybody started to play instrument when we were six years old it was just a wonderful thing they also did what they called musical hearing tests, just to kind of see your musical talent. And they found that I had perfect pitch and immediately said, well, you know, you, you have a great talent, you should play the violin. And I didn't 
want to play the violin. And the reason I didn't want to play the violin was because there were all these other people that already played the violin, and I wanted an instrument that nobody else had. And I said, can I play the cello? Nobody in the kibbutz ever played the cello. They didn't have a teacher. But my father had some old recordings in the house of Pablo Casals, who was the great cellist, and he would always play for me since I was little girls, and I fell in love with that sound. And I loved the fact that nobody else had it, so I requested it, and they said, no, we can't, we can't give you a cello, A, because we, we don't have the money to buy a cello, and we don't have a cello teacher, but I insisted, and my father spoke to his family in Argentina and asked them if they would buy a cello for me. So they did, and the kibbutz agreed to let me go outside of the kibbutz to study, which was the most exciting thing ever, because when you leave the kibbutz, you get to wear special clothes. There was like this one room that had special clothes that were only, if you go out of the kibbutz, you're allowed to wear them. So I remember putting this special little skirt and, and shirt, and I was so excited. And my father and I took the public bus to the nearby town. It was called Afula. And believe me, it's not a very glamorous town. It's a tiny little town. But for me, it looked like the most beautiful place. And we went into this public library where the teacher came to teach me. It was like magic because it was just this discovery. Within a year, I was very good to the point where she felt that she needed to pass me on to a better teacher, and she recommended that I start studying with this teacher in Tel Aviv, who was the best teacher at the time in Israel. So the kibbutz had to convene, because everything in the kibbutz had to be decided in a democratic way, and they had to vote on allowing me to go to Tel Aviv to study, and they did vote. It was the beginning of a very long journey with the kibbutz where I was basically creating all these precedents that they sometimes were not happy about. <laughs> and in that sense, of course, the kibbutz was a faulty idea, very much so. I mean, it was a beautiful ideal at the time, but they didn't see all the faults that was within when there were a lot of them when yes Karl Marx had some great ideas but in reality they haven't really worked that well as we know after successfully challenging the conventions of her kibbutz Maya next challenged those of the classical music world a few years later I was discovered by the great violinist Isaac Stern who came to Israel and he became my mentor. Stern, in addition to his personal mastery, also discovered Yo-Yo Ma and helped save New York's Carnegie Hall. And a lot of things have changed from there on. But I was playing in, in the, the big man auditorium in Tel Aviv, and it was sort of my first big concert. I was 15 at the time. And my mom took me to buy a dress 
And as you can gather from what I've told you, I had a very strong sense of fashion, which was not necessarily what was the expected fashion from, you know, a soloist with an orchestra. But she insisted that we get this dress, and so I went along with it, and she got me the shoes and everything. And just before I went on stage, I just... I felt, again, this urge to kind of do something that would allow me to connect. I think it's really to connect to my freedom. And I decided to just go barefoot. So I went with the dress and I went barefoot and I just did it right before I went on stage so nobody could say anything. And of course it became a little bit of a scandal. Then I was, okay, I, I really wanted to wear boots and wear like tight leggings. So it didn't necessarily start so much with the repertoire, but it started more with just the idea of theatricality on stage, the idea that when I go on stage, I want to be who I am and not sort of accept somebody else's notion of what I'm supposed to be. And therefore, my fashion and what I wear was something that I wanted to define. The same was true for lighting. I've always wanted to have a certain kind of lighting on stage because I always felt like, why is it that some of my great idols like Janis Joplin or the rock and roll people can do all this great lightings and we as classical performers need to go and play in this very boring wash of white on stage. So I've always asked lighting designers to come and, and do lighting and and some of my first performances here in the united states also like were views they would saying oh you know she used lighting as if it was some kind of a novelty <laughs> you know because it was in the classical music world but in terms of repertoire i think the big moment for me was very early on actually which is that i've always had an omnivorous kind of appetite for music. I was always interested in all kinds of music, not just classical music. And for many years, it was a secret. You know, I would listen to Brian Eno and I would listen to Janis Joplin, who was my idol, you know, when I was a teenager. But I couldn't say that to anybody, uh, certainly not in the classical music world, because a lot of these people didn't really consider non-classical music a serious form of art. I just didn't want to limit what I could do with the instrument based on what has been done. What I wanted to do with the cello was to bring all this repertoire that really meant a lot to me, all this kind of music. For example, my collaborations with Arabic musicians. I thought that that was something that was just really important for me because I really loved Arabic music. I would listen to Um Kulthum as a kid. And I thought I wanted to learn how to play this kind of music on the cello. And you're listening to cello goddess Maya Beiser. And this is our immigrant song series. And my goodness, she had perfect pitch but she also had perfectly good rebellious taste. And she just didn't want to do what everyone was doing. Violin, no thank you. Let me try that cello. Classical, it's nice. No thank you. Uh, some shoes with that dress? No, I'll try barefoot. 
And in the end, though so many classical musicians didn't respect the music of Janis Joplin or Led Zeppelin or so many of the pop bands and popular music, she was a rebel and she wanted to combine both worlds. When we come back, more of the life of cello goddess Maya Beiser here on Our American Story. Return to Our American Stories and the final portion of cellist Maya Beiser's story about music and freedom. Maya received a full scholarship to study at Yale, and so this Israeli came to America. To be honest, when I came, I didn't really think I was going to stay here. I didn't know much about the American culture. And I kind of saw myself more going back to France, where my mom's from. And while I was at Yale, I started to come to New York, and I immediately fell in love with New York. New York is my home, <laughs> and it's just there was just something about this city that that is just so great because it's a city of refugees from all over the world, being artist or other. <laughs> Uh, and 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 it's just the energy here is so great, and it allowed me to be the kind of artist that I am. I think living here in New York because you have the space and the freedom to kind of uh, explore whatever it is that you want to do, and so it made me a braver, fearless person because I didn't feel um, suffocated the way I think I felt in some way in the kibbutz certainly and, and in Israel which is a very small society so I um, you know you can re- one can reinvent oneself in New York every every other day and still nobody would really care and I think in many ways that's true for America I mean I think of this country as a place that as an immigrant, I could come here and I could become an American and I feel at home and I feel welcome. And um, it's, it's just, it's a wonderful thing. Maya was in her adopted home of New York on September 11th, 2001. That day was one of the most beautiful, glorious days. And my little girl, I was walking her to her preschool little nursery down the street from us. And I I came back from, from the nursery and we were sitting in our garden 
Yes, there are gardens in New York City as well. <laughs> and uh, we were drinking coffee and I'll never forget that conversation that we had at that, you know, at 8, 8 a.m. that morning because we were talking about how fortunate we are that we no longer live in Israel where, you know, there are terrorist attacks all the time and we thought how, how fortunate we are that we live in New York City and, and um, you know, we felt so secured and, and of course, a few minutes later, that horrified thing happened. This, Justin, you are looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center, and we have unconfirmed reports this morning that a plane has crashed into one of the towers of the World Trade Center. And we started to work on this piece right when that happened. It was going to be my first big show for Carnegie Hall, and they commissioned a piece. They commissioned this whole evening for me. And she titled it world to come the idea of world to come it's it's about life after death and what happens just just kind of how is it possible that these thousands of people were there for one moment and then they're gone and where do they go and so it's this notion of, of the soul that separates from the body because you have all these bodies in this case we didn't even have the bodies I sing and play at the same time, and the voice, is, the voice represents the soul, which is kind of trying to unite with the cello, which is the body. In the Jewish tradition, there's this notion that when one dies, the soul separates from the body, and then there's this whole time where you're supposed to sort of watch over the body because there's still it's it's still kind of a scary time where where the, the soul sort of tries to leave the body which is why there are all these rituals you know that has to do with purifying the body and all these things to kind of help the soul go but there also the belief is that eventually the soul tries to reunite with the body right and when the messiah comes and you know, I'm not an expert on Jewish religion at all, <laughs> but we, with this, with this piece, the idea was to try to convey that sense of of the soul and the body. And there's this moment in the in the fourth movement of World to Come, which is my favorite one, where you just hear the voice. And, and then you hear another voice, there's like an echo of the voices that happens. And then the cello comes in with this beautiful melody. It's sort of like this moment where they reunite together. It's one of my favorite work to play it's you know it's dark and somber but it's also just such a really powerful and beautiful piece
earlier we played for you some of Maya's covers of rock classics, and they were a part of her 2014 album Uncovered. Where there are no guitars or vocals, her cello does all of the heavy lifting with some assistance from a bass and drum. I think the cello has this incredible ability to be very sweet and beautiful and, you know, melancholy, but it could also be really gritty and kind of dirty. The range is huge. Plus, what I do, you know, because I, I use all kinds of distortions and all kinds of analog boxes and, you know, we have so many beautiful toys. So I put, I, you know, I really, in this album, the Uncovered album, the idea of Uncover was, was to, we called it Uncover, it was sort of like, you know, tongue-in-cheek a little bit, but, but it's, it's the idea that these are covers that sort of uncover the, the inner core of the music. You know, one thing that I always say, every piece of music that we play from the past is a cover. When I play Bach, I'm covering Bach. You know, when I play Mozart, I'm covering Mozart. When I play Beethoven, I'm covering Beethoven. So the idea that there's something different here is is only because, you know, we're so, I mean, the, the classical music basically plays music of the past and it's all covers, right? So and every person sort of bring their own interpretation to it. So I wanted to take those, those great, for me, each and every song in that album was a song that changed me deeply in some way at the moment that I first heard those songs. You know, Jimi Hendrix, I mean, I can't tell you what it did <laughs> to, my, to my musical world. And so I hope that in some way, there is some revelation in those uncovers that it somehow when people listen to it, they kind of hear something they haven't heard in the original. So obviously it does not try to replace the original, which is, I think, all of those originals are, are eternal and glorious. But it just tries, it's, it's tries to create another way to kind of hear those originals. You might think that Maya, with all of her contrarianism, would be casting aside all of the old, like Bach. But this isn't so. Every morning, she starts her practice with Bach. I'm not casting it aside at all. At all. In fact, I absolutely love Bach, and I find it um, very nourishing. So part of the reason why I started every morning with Bach is it's part of my whole meditative way that I start. I also start doing yoga, and I meditate, and, and I play Bach. And I, every day that I play Bach, I try to play it in a completely different way. So I have, I do this kind of mental exercises with myself. You know, but it's just a great way for me to sort of ground myself and um, and kind of also be humble, which I think is a very important thing for an artist. And Bach always makes me very humble. And you've been listening to Maya Beiser, and she is, of course, the cello goddess, so she's known as that. I think just after hearing her say that humility is a key part of her life, I hope she knows that's tongue-in-cheek. I don't think she'd call herself a goddess. But uh, having her play the covers of Bach and Beethoven 
but also put Zeppelin and Hendrix right in there with those two composers. Well, I think that's just a beautiful thing, and it makes her unique. And by the way, she talks about this country the way everyone does. And in the end, we call this an immigrant song for a simple reason. Everybody plays their song upon the canvas, upon the charts, the musical charts of this country. And it's freedom. That's why she came here. And that's what she loved about the place. And she gets to play it any old way she wants to in each and every one of our lives, an interpretation of that song, of that freedom song. Maya Beiser's life, her story, an immigrant song, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And when we think of great American inventors, names like Edison, Bell, Ford, and Franklin come to mind. But there's another inventor from around the turn of the century who's risen in popularity more recently than all of them. His name, Nikola Tesla. He was an immigrant who became a naturalized citizen in 1891. Here's Jesse with the rest of the story. Born in July of 1856, during a lightning storm in Serbia, Nikola Tesla is best known for his contributions in the design of the modern alternating current electricity supply system. With a name that has become synonymous with physics and engineering, Tesla is also remembered as a mad scientist who died penniless and alone. His experiments covered some of the earliest documented designs for fluorescent lighting, x-ray machines, radio, television, and even drone technology. But it's easy to romanticize a figure like Tesla. His father was a Serbian Orthodox priest. He hoped his son was going to go to the seminary as well. At a certain moment, Tesla convinces his family that he really ought to go study mathematics and then engineering. Here to separate fact from fiction, the man from legend, is biographer W. Bernard Carlson, speaking with permission of Microsoft Research about his book, Tesla, Inventor of the Electrical Age. So he goes to the Johann Polytechnic Institute in Graz, Austria. There he starts learning about electricity, He basically comes up with the idea after watching a demonstration in a physics class that the thing that the world needed at that point was a motor that did not spark, that had no commutator, that is to say no rotating switch in it, and that that would be a much better motor, it would be an ideal motor. How did he learn how to fully develop that motor? He went to work for several companies related to the Edison organization, one first in Budapest, that was a telephone company, then Paris where they were installing electric lights. He was a very good field engineer. He got transferred from Paris to New York City, and he arrived in New York City in 1884. He only stays with the Edison organization about six, eight months, and basically strikes out on his own in 1886, 
and starts up his own laboratory and his own business with some very talented and smart business partners, a man named Charles Peck and a man named Alfred Brown. There were investors, they were Wall Street types. I always imagine that they had this conversation with Tesla where they were looking at him and they said, we don't know what the hell you're talking about, but I love it and I want to make you a star. And, and that Peck and Brown really did, particularly Peck, made Tesla into a star. They really helped him figure out how to patent, promote, and sell. And indeed, when Tesla successfully develops this motor, they sell the patent rights to Westinghouse in 1888, to George Westinghouse. And Tesla, he splits the money with Peck and Brown. And Peck and Brown walk away with five-ninths of the deal. And Tesla gets four-ninths of the ro royalties that come off that invention. Why? Because Tesla himself knew that he, these guys, these business guys, had helped make him. Tesla's induction motor and the licensing of the patent by Westinghouse came at a time of extreme competition between electric companies. The three big firms, Westinghouse, Edison, and Thomson-Houston, were all trying to grow while undercutting each other's prices. In comes the financial panic of 1890 and Westinghouse couldn't keep up. Debts were sold to new lenders who wanted cutbacks on Tesla's guaranteed $15,000 per year in royalties on a motor that was basically just a working prototype. Tesla agrees to tear up his contract in exchange for remaining on good terms with Westinghouse, and the bet pays off. Six years later, Westinghouse purchased Tesla's patent for a lump sum payment of $216,000. That's somewhere north of $6 million in today's money. Many people say that Tesla had no sense of business. Eh, wrong. Tesla actually had a very clear sense of how he was going to make money off of his inventions. He wasn't going to do it like Edison did by manufacturing light bulbs or generators of all of that. Tesla, his business strategy was patent, promote, sell. Get the intellectual property, promote the living daylights out of the intellectual property, sell it to the highest bidder, move on to the next project. So he had a business strategy. That business strategy meant that the guy had to be a master showman. He had to be able to really get you excited, to get you to believe that what he was going to do was the next really cool thing. And that was part and parcel of the way that he approached creativity. And unlike Edison, who invented towards the marketplace, in other words, never invented something for which he didn't already have worked out who was going to be the customer, Tesla illustrates a very different sort of path, what economists would call a knowledge-driven form of innovation. Tesla's approach to invention was to say that underlying everything out there in the world, whether it is, it, is, it is just out in nature or it's something that people made, is a principle, what the Serbian Orthodox theologians would call the logos, and that the role of the inventor was to discover, discern that principle, and build the invention around that. So if you could come up with the kind of the kernel, the really the heart, the idea of what that technology was about, that's what you would build the invention around, okay? Now, this comes as, as uh, you know, straight out of philosophy, out of the thinking of Plato. Uh, if you read The Republic, Plato believed that that's what philosophers did, that philosophers found that kind of ultimate truth or underlying principle. The problem is, is not everybody surrounding the inventor or surrounding the philosopher understands what the ideal is about. And so you have to give people an approximation sort of say, well, it's kind of like this or it's kind of like that. The way I approach Tesla is this is, I call those illusions. Now, he's not trying to trick people, but he is trying to conjure up something in your mind that gets you excited so you want to buy the next new technology. 
Okay, so he could tell you a story, he could use a metaphor, he could invoke certain values. And the interesting part about his life then is this tension back and forth between ideal and illusion. I can picture this wonderful new way of doing things, build an electric motor around rotating magnetic field, but how do I then explain that to some businessman who may not know anything about electricity? I've got to tell him a good story. I've got to engage that, that investor in some way. And when we come back, more of the life of Nikola Tesla. And what an interesting story thus far. And what a way of thinking about things. Patent, promote, and sell. And that was the process for Nikola Tesla. Patent, you got to innovate and invent, and around these principles, promote. My goodness, it sounds like he's almost P.T. Barnum. He's got to get out there and really push it, dazzle people, and then sell it, and then on to the next big idea. We're learning more about one of the great inventors in American history. Nikola Tesla's story continues here on Our American Story. to Our American Stories and a brief history of Nikola Tesla. And here again is Jesse Edwards and Professor Bernard Carlson. When we left off, Nikola Tesla had sold his AC induction motor to Westinghouse Electric. When they hit financial trouble, Tesla let them out of their contract of $15,000 per year in royalties, only to have them turn around and buy the patent six years later for two hundred sixteen grand or upwards of six million bucks adjusted for inflation. Now Nikola Tesla had the funding to do whatever he wanted. And whatever he wanted, he did. He invents the Tesla coil in 1891, an antenna that's used to produce a high-voltage, low-current, high-frequency arc that moves through the air like lightning. Here again is biographer W. Bernard Carlson. Tesla leaves New York, goes to Colorado Springs, and there builds an experimental station, the largest, probably the largest Tesla coil that was ever built, and he was able to get sparks off of this magnifying transmitter, this giant Tesla coil, on the order of about 100, 105 feet. Tesla discovered that when he held a fluorescent light next to the Tesla coil, it would light up even without being plugged into anything. He was convinced that there was a way to use this energy. Imagine lighting an entire house with this wireless electricity near the turn of the century. Entire neighborhoods, towns, cities. As far as he was concerned, if I could get one light bulb to light up, no problem. I can get 100 to work, and I'm not going to lose any energy. He, he Basically, because he took the view that if I can imagine the ideal in my mind, I can see it in my mind's eye, and I get just enough evidence from the real world that it's working. I can get one light bulb to work, I'm home free. It's going to turn out. Okay. So one of the scary parts about Colorado Springs is this is, and there's like 500 pages of notes from Colorado Springs, and you're going through, I'm going through them, and I'm reading all the newspaper articles from that time period, and I suddenly realize there are no witnesses. Nobody saw anything other than Tesla and like one assistant in Colorado Springs. Okay. So he basically said, I did it. But he has no proof. 
Tesla was convinced that he had sent electricity not only across the cow pasture, but around the world. Over the next decade, he conducts public demonstrations where he would light a bulb from across the stage, but he never really found any success in making that commercial product out of his findings. So he goes back to New York to look for investors for an idea he has in the world of wireless communications. In March of 1901, J.P. Morgan gives Tesla 150K, that's 4.5 million in today's dollars, for a 51% share of any future patents. Tesla takes the deal and uses the money to build what he called Wardenclyffe Tower, 65 miles from New York City. Tesla had become convinced that he could transmit electricity around the world by using the Earth itself as the conductor. The massive Tesla coil stood 187 feet tall. Everybody gets so worked up about the tower. A secret is the hole, the well beneath the tower. Okay, so under here is a shaft 120 feet deep, and at the bottom of the shaft were 16 pipes that he basically pushed out underneath the water table, and that was, as Tesla said, was to get a grip on the earth and shake it. In other words, I'm going to deliver electromagnetic energy into the earth, and this is how I'm gonna send power all over the world, okay? And, you know, he really assumed that, that if he got money from J.P. Morgan, he gave the right sort of newspaper interviews, he built this fabulous laboratory, he lived at the Waldorf Astoria, you know, did everything right, that the results were going to follow. One of the things he didn't take into account, as far as Tesla was concerned, an upstart Italian named Guillermo Marconi. Marconi started working on radio in about 1895, and from the get-go, Marconi's insight was, what we're going to do here is we're going to do wireless telegraphy. So in fall 1901, Marconi, and Marconi is always looking over his shoulder, where's Tesla going? Where's Tesla going? And he decides that even though Tesla has already predicted in 1899 that I, Tesla, am going to be the first to send a message across the Atlantic Ocean, Marconi says, <laughs> let him fart around, pardon me, let him mess around with what he's doing on the North Shore of Long Island, I'm going to get this sucker done. And he succeeds in sending the letter S in Morse code, and they detect it. You took $150,000 from J.P. Morgan. You built this fancy laboratory, you know, and this guy Marconi scoops you. So what do you say to J.P. Morgan? Well, J.P., Mr. Morgan, I'm really sorry I took the money, and I, I, I won't happen again. That's not Tesla. Tesla basically comes back roaring in January 1902, and he writes Morgan a letter, and he says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a world telegraphy system. Build a few power plants in major cities, like New York, and each one of those is going to collect all sorts of information about stock prices, newspaper stories. The Associated Press is already in existence. Reuters is already basically sending news, news stories over the wires, over telegraph wires. We'll do fax messages. We'll do personal messages. We'll do telephone calls. We'll do everything, okay? And we're going to pump it into the earth. And those stations, as fast as they receive the news, they're going to pour it into the ground, which will spread instantly all over the earth. And so Morgan just sort of says, thanks, but no thanks. I'm not putting any more money into this. And so Tesla's left high and dry after 1903 with no additional money from Morgan. Tesla basically gets himself hoisted on a petard by giving Morgan 51% of the patent rights 
when he does the original deal. That makes it a mess for getting other, any other investors. Now, before you beat up Tesla too badly about this, Marconi wins the Nobel Prize in 1915 for his work on radio, and he devotes the Nobel Prize speech to basically saying, um, radio waves, they, they, they go through the atmosphere like this, or maybe they go through the atmosphere like that. He didn't really know. Okay? They didn't understand the ionosphere, what we understand today. You have the transmitter. You send up the radio waves to the antenna. The energy radiates off the antenna, goes across space, beep, 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 hits an antenna on the receiver. The receiver detects the signal. And to complete the circuit, both the receiver and the transmitter are grounded. Tesla said, no, 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 no. We're going to do it exactly the opposite way. We're going to pump energy into the ground, oscillating electric currents. They are going to travel through the earth, come to a ground connection at the receiver's end, and then they are going to go back up to the receiver. The energy is going to be used to uh, send messages or run lights or, or motors, and you're going to have some sort of connection in the sky that completes the circuit. So exactly the opposite of what everybody else was doing. So what did Tesla contribute to radio? And yes, the Supreme Court did hand down a decision where they used Tesla patents to basically, in an antitrust case, stick it to RCA. Okay? That doesn't mean that the Supreme Court decided that Tesla invented radio. This is, this is one of these little legal points that's, that's worthy of just mentioning. But if you want to talk about who looked at electromagnetic waves, radio waves, and said, there's an opportunity there, Tesla is your guy. Okay, well ahead of Marconi, he's thinking about what to do. And what he really underlines, which is, I think, an important lesson, is, is how hard it is to disintroduce a disruptive technology. Okay, we sort of, ah, well, the Wright brothers invented the airplane in 1903. <laughs> we're all set. You know, we're going to, you know, we can have commercial air travel, you know, just like that. Okay, there's a long way from the Wright brothers to passenger airlines. The work that engineers and entrepreneurs do to make that happen is real work. Tesla did two big things in his life. He, he contributed two technologies that disrupted the way that people did business, created entirely new industries, changed the way people lived their lives every day. The first one was the alternating current motor, which he worked on in, uh, in the 1880s. And then in the 1890s, he worked on the wireless transmission of power. In other words, he was a rival in the first story with Thomas Edison, in the second story with Marconi, okay? In both cases, you've got this wonderful opportunity in Tesla in that you've got a wonderful success story, and then you have a disruptive technology that didn't turn out so well. The arrow moves from the inside of the inventor out to the marketplace, out to the world. Inventors like Tesla have an idea inside, and they want to order the world out there. It's a subjective process rather than an objective process where you go out and you measure things and you, you, you study the marketplace, you study the phenomenon on the basis of what you see at the benchtop or what you see in your market surveys, you act on that. Tesla is, 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 is moving in the opposite direction. We see time and time again that for him to succeed with his major technologies, he's got to tell a good story. He's got to invoke a metaphor. He's got to fire your imagination. Arthur C. Clarke in the 1970s said, any sufficiently advanced technology will always be perceived as magic. Tesla understood that. And above all, Tesla succeeded or failed because when he got or not, didn't get the right kind of partnership. And a partnership between technology, the stuff that Tesla would do, and the entrepreneurs that could help create and advance that technology.
Great job as always, Jesse, and special thanks to W. Bernard Carlson and Microsoft Research. And by the way, Carlson's book, Tesla, Inventor of the Electric Age, get it at Amazon.com. And he happens to be a professor of engineering and society at the University of Virginia, where I went to law school. And what an interesting subject. Nikola Tesla's story, here on Our American Story. And we continue here on Our American Stories. Sturm, Ruger, and Company, Inc., better known by the shortened name Ruger, is an American firearm manufacturing company based in Southport, Connecticut, with production facilities also in New Hampshire, North Carolina, and Arizona. Ruger is the biggest gun manufacturer in the country, and it's not by accident. In the words of William Ruger, each firearm is built, quote, to a standard so I would want one even if it was made by our competitors. Ruger's motto is, quote, arms makers for responsible citizens, unquote. And here to tell this American story is Logan Medish. Logan is a firearms historian and museum professional who runs High Caliber History, LLC. Here's Logan. The timing really couldn't have been better for William Ruger when he and Alexander Sturm became business partners in January of 1949. Ruger had been making hand tools for the previous few years, but unfortunately business was not going well for him. He found himself $40,000 in debt and he was pretty much ready to close up shop when he showed Sturm a prototype of something that he was working on which harkened back to his earlier days with military arms development. So Sturm liked what he saw and agreed to bankroll the project with $50,000 in seed money. And just like that, those two men began laying the foundation for what would become one of the largest firearm companies in the United States. But in order to get there, you have to realize where they came from. So let's start with William Ruger. His dad was a lawyer and his mother was from a family that owned a successful chain of department stores. As an interesting aside, his great-grandfather was actually a drummer boy at the Battle of Waterloo in 1815. Anyway, so uh, Bill Ruger had always been interested in firearms and tinkering with designs and, and very mechanically inclined. Uh, in fact, he patented his first machine gun when he was just 16 years old. With the help of his aunt, who had set him up with a college fund, he ended up going to the University of North Carolina, where he continued to work on arms designs, specifically a blow-forward style machine gun. While he was in college, he met a girl named Mary Thompson. She was from a well-heeled family there in North Carolina, and they got married in 1938. Bill was just finishing up his sophomore year of college, but when he got married, he quit, and the two of them promptly took off for a three-month-long European honeymoon. Once back in the States, Bill continued to work on developing different firearms designs, and one of the things he started to do was tinker with an existing design. He took a Savage Model 99 lever-action rifle, 
and converted it into a gas-operated, self-loading repeating rifle. And rightly so, he was pretty darn proud of his work, so he took it to New York City and demonstrated it to the executives at Savage and found himself rather baffled when they weren't absolutely astounded with what he had done. You know, he was hoping they would buy the design and and bring him on board as, as a designer and offer him a job, but that just wasn't the case. So Bill found himself with a young wife, a newborn son, Bill Jr., an empty inheritance coffer, and no job. So they went back down to North Carolina, and as luck would have it, he ended up getting a telegram that offered him a job at Springfield Armory in Springfield, Massachusetts for $32.50 a week. And it was really not something he was in a position to pass up, so he took the job. But he didn't stay there for terribly long. He ended up quitting in the spring of 1940. He quit because he didn't want to end up like John Garand, who he felt was treated like a a mechanical toy and was paid what he felt to be a mediocre salary for all of his contributions. Which is really saying something because John Garand is, of course, one of the, the greatest arms designers of the 20th century and you and I and anyone else in, in the, the gun world would consider it an honor to end up like John Garand, but not Bill Ruger. That was not good enough for him. He aspired to higher things. So he went and continued refocusing his efforts on his machine gun designs, and he pitched the idea to Smith & Wesson. Now, they turned him down, but they did offer him a job. They saw his potential as a designer, and Smith & Wesson offered him a job for $75 a week, which was a nice pay bump, obviously. But Bill's pride kind of got in the way, and he rejected it, and on down the road he went to another gun company, this time High Standard. They weren't interested, but they told him, again, to head on down the road and try his luck with auto ordnance. So Bill went over to auto ordnance, and a little while later they ended up hiring him as an arms designer, and his pay was somewhere around $100 a week. So he took that job around the beginning of World War II, and he stayed on as an arms designer for them until the end of the war in 1945. By 1946, Bill had gone into business for himself. He always wanted to be self-employed and and have the the freedom to do his own thing and design his own stuff. And so that's exactly what he did with the Ruger Corporation. They were making uh, hand tools and small industrial parts. And also he was working on his design for a 22 caliber pistol. But unfortunately, like I'd mentioned earlier on, business wasn't doing so well. The whole hand tool concept was a good idea, but it was proving too pricey for the market. So by 1949, Bill was basically flat broke when he met Alexander Sturm. Now, Sturm was an interesting guy. He was a a legacy Yale graduate and, like Bill, was from a well-to-do family and was always sporting custom-tailored clothes and taking weekend trips to New York City and while the rest of his Yale classmates ate at the cafeteria on campus, he dined at the finest restaurants in the hotels in, in the local area. He was kind of a renaissance man. He dabbled in a little bit of everything, including writing, acting, painting, filmmaking, and he was also a big-time collector of all sorts of different things, one of which just happened to be firearms. 
Adding to the oddity that is the life of Alexander Sturm, this well-bred young man served during World War II with the Office of Strategic Services, which was the forerunner of sorts for today's CIA. So with that $50,000 worth of seed money, they started their company and their first factory, and I, I use that term loosely, was in a small, unassuming building that they affectionately dubbed the Red Barn across the street from a railroad depot in Southport, Connecticut. It was essentially just Bill and Alex and a couple of toolmakers all working, you know, long, long hours into the night. And uh, Bill actually mentioned at one point he was writing the final payroll check from the initial $50,000 and they were out of cash. And, and he told Alex, he said, this is the last bit of money for the original $50,000 investment. But that was okay because they had designed this pistol together and Alex Sturm had checks for a hundred guns that were ready to be sent out into the mail. And so just like that, they were in business, the seed money paid off. Now, this gun that they designed together was inspired by World War II handguns from the Axis powers. It had a, a similar silhouette appearance of both the Japanese Nambu and the German Luger in certain ways. Uh, the ergonomics of those guns were tweaked a little bit to create what would become known as the Ruger Standard, uh, and the gun would go on to be lauded by shooters for generations as being well-balanced, easy to hold, and easy to shoot. Unfortunately, the gun is a bit of a, a Rubik's Cube in design when it comes to uh, putting the gun back together. And when we come back, we'll continue with the story of Ruger, the great American company. And my goodness, how it got started is like how so many companies got started. On the cheap and almost out of business from the beginning. More of the story of Ruger, the great American gun company, after these messages. This is Our American Story. And we continue with our American stories and the story of Ruger, the great American arms manufacturer right here in the United States. Let's continue with this great business story. There's a, a joke in the gun community that God came to Bill Ruger in a dream and showed him the design for the Ruger Standard pistol. But unfortunately, Bill woke up before God could tell him how to put it back together. Anyway, uh, when, when the gun was first put into production and they were working on things, they had a total of eight barreled pistol receivers that they had made as test guns for this new design. And serial number three of these guns was actually the first one to leave the factory. Serial numbers one and two were retained internally for further study. February of 1950, Sturm, Ruger and Company had a back order of an astounding 5,000 units and a production capacity of just 900 guns a month. By summer of the same year, the backlog had grown to 9,000 units 
and their production capacity had picked up a little bit, but they were still only able to make a thousand guns a month. That backlog is a testament to that little gun's rugged design and its ease of use and its affordability. Finally, finally, there was a 22 caliber pistol on the market that anyone could afford to own and that was easy enough for anyone to learn how to shoot with this gun. Within a year, that little startup company from Connecticut had gained traction and continued to advance at a rapid pace. But Alex Sturm contracted viral hepatitis and died very unexpectedly in November of 1951. He was just 28 years old. The company's heraldic eagle logo that today is instantly recognizable as Ruger that eagle was actually designed by Alex Sturm, and so, paying homage to his fallen business partner, Bill Ruger changed the color of the eagle in the logo from red to black. And with the exception of the one millionth Ruger standard pistol that they produced in 1979, it wasn't until 1999, with the celebration of their 50th anniversary, that the logo would return to red on all of their guns. So even though they had the tremendous setback of Alex Sturm passing away unexpectedly at a very young age, Bill Ruger was a shrewd businessman and he didn't want to rest on their laurels and be, be seen as one-trick pony, so he knew that they were going to have to diversify their offerings beyond that 22 caliber pistol. Given the popularity of westerns and cowboy six-guns in the 1950s, the Ruger company introduced their first single-action revolver in 1953. The revolver was an instant success, and the company introduced the Single Six, the Black Hawk, and the Bearcat, all of which were single-action revolvers, all by the end of that decade, and each one of them was a hit. Next up, rifles. So the Deerstalker, the 1022, the Number One, the Model 77, and so on, were all added to the lineup uh, in the 1960s. And due to the brand's success and popularity, the company became publicly traded for the first time in 1969. Now, it would go on to be listed on the New York Stock Exchange in 1990, but today it remains the only American arms manufacturer that is publicly traded as a standalone entity and not grouped into a larger parent organization. So they're flying high by the end of 1969. Uh, they've been in business 20 years. And now it's time for a flop. But it wasn't a gun. Bill Ruger collected high-end antique automobiles. And so in that vein, he designed what was known as the Ruger Sports Tourer, which was a car based on the Bentley. And it had an estimated retail price of twelve dollars to $13,000. Bill read the market wrong uh, with the car, and it, that was kind of a rare occurrence for him. He usually was a, a keen eye and knew what people wanted, but they did not want this car. So they'd only made two of them when they turned their focus back to making guns. Unfortunately, they'd already spent eight years and $400,000 developing a car that never made it to production. Nonetheless, when they turned their attention back to guns, they did well in the 70s. By 1979, which was the company's 30th anniversary, four of the models they offered had already sold a million units each, and they finished up their 30th anniversary 
with sales totaling $68.8 million and a profit of $7.9 million, which was up like 14% over the previous year alone. So by 1989, and at, at this point in American history, the idea of a so-called assault weapons ban was really picking up steam. And so Bill Ruger wrote a letter to every member of Congress, and he told them that they should limit magazine capacity instead of trying to ban these so-called assault weapons. Taking it a step further, in a couple more years, he would sit down with NBC in 1992, and in that interview, he was quoted as saying that no honest man needs more than 10 rounds in any gun. And backlash against Bill and the company was swift. Gun owners as a whole have very long memories, and there are still some people to this day that will not own a Ruger firearm because of what Bill said. Fortunately for them, you know, they, they make a good product and there were enough people who still rallied around the brand and they found themselves in 1999 celebrating their 50th anniversary. And by that point in time, they had really cemented their place both in firearms history and in American history. You know, quite literally tens of millions of gun owners had Ruger firearms in the field hunting, sitting in their home gun safes out on the range with their kids, sitting in the gun rack in their trucks, you know, Ruger firearms were everywhere. And over the years, Bill Ruger had the opportunity to buy a whole bunch of other companies. Even if you don't know firearms, you still know names like Colt, Smith & Wesson, Remington, and Winchester. He had the opportunity to buy all of those companies and didn't. And it wasn't just gun companies. Beyond that, he had the opportunity to buy both Maserati, the sports car company, and Harley-Davidson, the iconic motorcycle company. Instead, he chose to focus on his guns. By 2000, Bill was 84 years old, and he decided it was finally time to retire. Now, retirement was kind of an odd thing for Bill. In 1992, he did an interview with Forbes magazine when he told him that he could never retire because he'd never done a god day's work in his life. So how can you retire if you've never worked? Uh, nonetheless, he did retire, and his son took over as chairman and CEO of the company. Bill had also said around that same time that if you rest, you rust. And so that's why he tried to keep so active. And unfortunately, retirement meant rest, and it meant rust. So Bill Ruger died in 2002, having spent 53 years involved in the operations of the company that he helped found. And his son, Bill Ruger Jr., passed away in 2018 after working for his father's company for 42 years. He retired in 2006, and so even though there's been no direct Ruger descendant running the company in more than a decade, they are definitely one of the big players on the block in terms of American firearms. The Ruger Standard Pistol that they initially created back in 1949 lives on today in a variant known as the Mark IV. And like the previous three versions, it maintains all of the classic appeal and lines of the Standard, but it just kind of updates the platform for today's market. Most importantly, however, it solves the difficulty of takedown and reassembly. So now that Bill Ruger is spending all of his time 
up above with God, he was finally able to have God show him how to put the pistol back together. And so now that the Mark IV has ironed out all the kinks in the design, the gun can remain at the forefront as uh, an incredibly popular gun for people to learn how to shoot on, both young and old, beginner and seasoned pros alike. The humble startup that consisted of just a few guys in a red barn now has more than 1,800 employees. They're still headquartered in Connecticut, but now they've got five factories throughout the country. The original Red Barn building still stands, but they have obviously long since outgrown it, and today it's home to a real estate company. It is, however, still red. Alexander Sturm's $50,000 investment really paid off. The company today is worth $940 million. And given their success, I think it's safe to say that Mr. Sturm and Mr. Ruger would have big smiles on their faces if they could see where their company is at today. And a very special thanks to Logan Medish. Logan is a firearms historian and museum professional who runs High Caliber History, LLC. And again, that's a very special thanks to Logan for, for telling us that story. And my goodness, what a story. 1,800 employees off a $50,000 loan. Two guys just, well, never working a minute in their lives, they probably felt. And so many people who work for themselves, that's why they do it. Because they have something special they want to do. And my goodness, anyone who owns weapons, who loves firearms, and responsible firearm ownership is a big deal. But he testified and went public on magazine capacity. My goodness, that took a lot of courage to do. And he did it. And... We love to tell these stories. Share yours with ours, your favorite stories about local businesses that really make a difference in your town. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Ruger, the great American gun manufacturer, their story here on Our American Stories.